I'm John. The following Dharma Punks NYC talk and meditation is led by Buddhist Pastor Josh Korda. For more talks and class schedules, please visit dharmapunksnyc.com. All of my work is offered entirely by donation only. If you'd like to support my work, the Venmo is dharmapunksnyc, and the PayPal button is on the dharmapunksnyc website. Thanks so much for your support. And this is Dharma Punks New York Tuesday evening class, and uh, welcome. A couple of announcements. Our good friends at Center Yoga have allowed us to use their space on East 23rd Street. Sunday, May 22nd, my class at 2 and Kathy's Somatic Experiencing Practice at four. For those who want to go on our retreat, which will be over the Labor Day weekend from September 1st to 5th, that will be at Garrison Institute, and you can find it on the Garrison Institute website or on our website, Dharma Punks NYC, and info links to both the Sunday and the retreat will be there. And we do everything keeping the prices as low as possible so that everyone can attend without uh, worrying too much about financial implications. Speaking of which, I do everything, all the teaching and counseling by donation only. So if you'd like to contribute, the Venmo is Dharma Punks with an XNYC and the PayPal's on the website, dharmapunksnyc.com. So thanks for all that. And uh, so tonight's topic is on developing healthy ego function in a narcissistic culture. So I'm going to be addressing ego function and what compromises it. Then we'll talk about different strategies to develop accurate self-appraisal and so that our sense of self is appropriate, which has so many benefits in life. And then we'll have a meditation where we'll actually practice in our contemplation work, practice uh, ways to develop an intuitive and honest self-appraisal, and then from that, we'll have time for questions. So hopefully, all of this will be of some interest. And so right now, all I ask is that you find a really comfortable seated position, relax, and just see how some of these ideas sit with you. So it's very common for people in countless cultural traditions, spiritual practices, to say that their head leads them in one direction and their heart in another. The idea meaning that the head is the realm of logical thought and long-term planning, reason, and that the heart, on the other hand, reflects one's emotional needs. It's known via our longing our intuition, our feelings. And the Buddha certainly reflected this in 
his teachings of the mind. He said that there was a realm of the chitta, which was the heart mind, the emotional mind, the non, largely nonverbal uh, mind that he noted influences attention, where we focus our attention, is uh, much more intuitive. But that he also noted there was a, what he called a mana, a, another quality of mind that was verbal, rational, logical, based on thinking, based on interpretations of the world that he called ditti. So there was this very clear opposition between the emotional, non-ver- largely nonverbal, attention-focused, intuitive versus the logical, rational, uh, focused on concepts. And if we now jump forward some two and a half thousand years, uh, we now live in a time where transcranial magnetic stimulation and the famous WADA tests and the work of Gazaniga and Joseph Ledoux and so on and so forth, along with the contemporary neuropsychologists such as Ian McGilchrist and Dan Siegel and Alan Shore and so many others have shown that there are significant differences between the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere which can, in essence, lies the underpinnings for this sense of the heart versus the head. So the right brain, which hosts what we could also call bottom-up processes, develops very early in life. It's what allows babies to transmit their internal body sensations, states, and needs that require addressing they can express it in nonverbal cues to their parents. So for instance, if a child feels hunger, cold, overwhelmed, excited, fatigued, it can use different cries, gestures, facial expressions, utterances, and so forth to convey its internal states externally. And all of this is done almost entirely mediated by the right brain because up until the first three or four years of life, the left hemisphere is not significantly wired. The right hemisphere is what develops first. The right is a realm that's less verbal. It focuses on embodied sensory experience. It doesn't overlay conceptual ideas. It's, it uh, is experience-oriented. It's vigilant in every moment for threats, and it seeks safety through attachments with other people. If you look at a squirrel in the wild, while its left brain is focusing attention on getting nuts, its right hemisphere is aware of all the background, looking for cats, looking for humans, looking for any threats. And so the right brain largely works in the background 
when we're adults. It's very associative and timeless. All of the emotionally painful and evocative events of our lives are linked and are constantly available to the right brain. And uh, when the right hemisphere is overactive, it tends to lead to a withdrawal of engagement in the world. It's people who are, for any sustained period of time, right brain dominant, tend to be depressed and tend to, while they have accurate, somewhat accurate appraisals of the world around us, they tend to be overwhelmed and don't have much of a uh, optimistic goals for the future. So we can see that the heart mind, or what we refer to as the heart, uh, is not really necessarily the body, but it's what's organized by right brain representations of how we feel in our bodies and our impulses to survive. On the other hand, we have the left brain, which is a disembodied ivory tower of ideas and concepts. It represents life very quickly into thoughts and ideas so that we can stop paying attention to the world around us and our internal experience. The right brain has very, left brain has very little embodied connection. It's not as exonically wired, especially to regions that report body sensations, such as the insula. Uh, it's very top-down in terms of it, when it encounters new experiences, it immediately tries to turn it into a concept or idea. So if you meet somebody for the first time, for a brief moment, you're primarily looking at them and surveying them using your right brain. You're observing all their nonverbal cues, and you're not really consciously coming up with a... a uh, uh, a sense uh, immediately of who they are. You're just taking them in. And that requires a lot of right brain, largely often unconscious associative practices where you compare them with people from your past and you look at their micro expressions and you do these neuroceptive processes. And then, bang, you come up with a feeling and then you're left uses that feeling to decide, well, that person is likable or unlikable. This person is important or dull or exciting or uh, not exciting. And so it's like there's this snapping of experience into ideas and categories, good, bad, useful, useless, so on and so forth. So whenever we walk into a different setting, at first, we're using the right brain to take in the entire gestalt, the entire, all the nonverbal experience. And then once we come up with a gut feeling, the left grabs it and then turns it into a story um, filled with ideas and concepts. The left uh, narrowly focuses our attention on things we want to achieve and get. So when the squirrels out hunting for seeds or food, it's literally focusing its attention using its left brain while in the background, its right hemisphere is looking for threats. And 
It's our left brains that allow us to develop long-term goals for the future. And to achieve our goals, our left brain inhibits impulses that interfere with these long-term goals, like to go to school, to move, to uh, find a romantic partner, to write a novel. All of this requires a lot of left brain inhibiting of our ingrained withdrawal, fear, uh, attach at all costs, security-oriented impulses in our heart, right brain, bottom-up impulses. So it's very clear that when we talk about egoic function, uh, which we'll define in a moment, we're talking about left brain processes. So the left brain identity, which is what we would also call an egoic approach to the world, is what we think about ourselves. It's a story of our achievements, our, our static attributes, uh, how we fit in with the world, our pathologies. So if I'm having an egoic uh, uh, sense of self, I'll tell a story. I'm a Buddhist pastor. I'm, uh, you know, I work in teaching and counseling. I'm a recovering alcoholic with 27 years of sobriety. I'm an intellectual, I'm from a Jewish family, blah, blah, blah. So it's a story filled with ideas and concepts and attributes. And I might even, if I was being, uh, trying to build up my ego, I might say, oh, I'm a very interesting Buddha's pastor, or if I was beating down myself and I had a low self-appraisal, I might say I'm a not very interesting <laughs> Buddha's pastor and so on and so forth. So the ego is not just long-term goals, but we'll talk about what it is, but it's what we think about ourselves versus the right brain and bottom-up and heart practices are what we feel about ourselves, not what we think about ourselves, but what do we feel when we see ourselves in the mirror, when somebody looks at us, when we're in new situations? How do we feel internally? Our felt sense of self, which is hosted by the right brain, and it's what we would call the heart mind is fluidly shifting in situations. In one situation, I can feel confident. My body can have energy. My, I can feel this sense of drive. And on the other hand, in other situations, I might be uh, insecure and might feel small and my body might contract. I might feel anxious. In certain situations, I might feel excited or in other situations, I might not, I might feel bored. And those are all fluidly shifting felt internal experiences. So there's two forms of identity. In other words, we all have two different sense of self. One is an ego appraisal, which is based on the story we tell. And that story is very often what we want other people to believe in us or who we feel we have to be versus a felt internal set of sensations, which is our heart mind, which is very, very 
based on fluidly shifting feelings that arise and pass in different contexts. So in cognitive therapies and so on and so forth, uh, it focuses on changing our self-appraisal to become more accurate and inclusive. Emotion-focused therapies, Genlin's focusing and so on, uh, focuses entirely on how we feel in different situations. And it focuses on changing the underlying feelings when they're not appropriate or don't help us in different situations. So we can have top-down therapies, which are about changing how we think, that are cognitive or bottom-up therapies, which are changing how we feel in our body. And both have their advantages and disadvantages, of course. So Freud was the one who gave us the definition of the ego. For Freud, the brain had two core timeless drives that were largely there at birth. And one was an aggressive drive, and the other was a pleasure-seeking drive that included a drive to attach to others for security. So these twin drives, one for pleasure and one for um, security are unconcerned with the social ramifications. They don't care, uh, you know, how we appear. And if you look at our closest cousins in the animal kingdom, for example, chimps, which have 99% similar genetic structure, they have the same drives for aggression and seeking pleasure and attachment. However, when a female chimp is interested in a male, she'll put her <laughs> swollen genitalia in the male's face, which is generally not what we do in our world. If a male wants sex, he'll literally display his erect penis to a female. So the fact that we have left brain egos um, allow us to inhibit these impulses or drives and creates a social friendly uh, process of refining or um, sublimating drives in a way that makes them more conducive to the kind of social interactions we're accustomed to. The ego develops our long-term goals, which reflect our core drives, but the long-term goals are the drives that have been modified so that they're not inappropriate or harmful to others. And that's a role of the ego. For Freud, the ego essentially uh, would sublimate our aggressive drives by having us go to a kickboxing class or watching a John Wick film so that we're not actively discharging our aggression onto others through acts of violence. Of course, sometimes our ego functions break down and people actually do engage in violence. But when our egos are functioning, they inhibit these drives into more socially appropriate uh, manners. Our, according to Freud, our sex drives are sublimated in ways that are far more conducive to less harmful forms of sexual activity. So um, without commenting, you know, today 
people will post the selfie, I suppose, on Tinder or Hinge or Bumble. They'll meet someone, they'll go out for coffee, they'll go out for dinner, they'll discuss their favorite films, and they'll get to know the other person. And that's a very uh, egoic, sublimated approach to getting one's needs for attachment and uh, pleasure and sexual needs met. Um, so the ego abides by and lives in accordance, hopefully, with social norms and transforms our drives in ways that are more digestible and appropriate for the cultures we live in. Um, over the course of life, we develop ego states, which are collections of thoughts and behaviors and beliefs that we use in different settings. So I have an ego structure or an ego state for teaching or being a Buddhist pastor, but I have a different one when I'm with friends hanging out. And I have a different one when I'm traveling and uh, on a vacation. And I have a different one when I'm uh, at the gym. When I'm counseling, I'm very focused on other people, empathetically listening, trying to be of support. But when I'm at the gym, I'm just focused on my internal experience and trying to uh, not pay attention to anyone else. And my entire demeanor is different. So the ego helps us develop appropriate behaviors for different situations. When we have accurate self-appraisal or what we would call ego function or what we might call realistic thoughts about ourselves, we can function and achieve things in the world. We'll be able to know our skills, our capabilities. We'll be able to accurately know areas for growth. We'll set realistic goals that are not too that are possible to achieve. When ego function breaks down in dementia or when people are on drugs or have mental illness, the loss of ego function leads to really sad regressive states of dependency and uh, antisocial acts that are associated with decompensation. When we have an accurate self-appraisal, we really can sustain good friendships and set attainable goals. We can take care of our mental well-being. We don't take credit for others' efforts. We don't engage in excessive blame when things go wrong. So given how important the ego is, what goes wrong? Well, there's actually quite a bit that goes wrong. Uh, family systems that provided unreliable attention ego function starts to develop an excessive concern with one's tribal status. So people will anxiously compare themselves with others and will look on social media to see how well their classmates or old work colleagues are doing. And they're prone to envy and excessive jealousy and fear of missing out. So early attachment wounds can lead directly to this sense of a lack of a state, a sense of a good sense of self, and it creates this constant 
checking with others how others are doing to create an external sense that is based simply on comparing ourselves with others based on really immature and and essentially uh, uh, needless uh, categories of comparison such as how well is somebody else doing financially their job title are they very popular whatever um when people have grandiose inflated sense of self-importance we can refer to them as egotistical or narcissistic referring to them as egotistical is is not really correct because a healthy ego is vital to high functioning so if we use narcissistic what we're referring to are individuals that have a very frail damaged unlovable sense of self due to severe attachment wounds in childhood perhaps being scared of their caregivers and these individuals seek ongoing attention and approval from others because they have no implicit sense of self-worth. And so what they do is they need to construct an ego sense of self, a self-story that compensates for this very fragile sense of self. So they seek to be seen as right. They cannot ask for help. They compete rather than collaborate. They exaggerate their contributions all the time. They set unrealistic goals. They'll push themselves at the expense of their well-being, and they'll push people they work with at the expense of others' well-being. They'll micromanage. They'll refuse to delegate, and they'll blame others for shared mistakes. And all of this is due to the fact that their self-appraisal, their egoic sense of explicit sense of self is trying to compensate for a damaged, wounded, um, small, fragile, unlovable self that's felt, not thought, but the felt sense is damaged. And there's lots of reasons to suggest we live today in a narcissistic culture, by which I mean that, as other psych psychologists such as Daniel Brand have noted, that the failures in our institutional supports for parents mean that parents have to take on all of the financial and caretaking burdens. They have to feed, pay the rent, lead, do the doctor's appointments. They have to pay for schools. And so parents are so overwhelmed that they fail in at times being empathetic and expressing delight when the children really need that most. And this leads to that underlying damaged sense of self that leads in turn to a widespread fixation on how we look and appear and how we compare to others in terms of money and in terms of tribal status and in terms of popularity, rather than thinking in terms of what our commonalities are and noticing our internal feelings and using them as a, uh, to build up a sense of self. So in short, narcissism in a narcissistic culture, people who don't get their early developmental needs met try to compensate by developing a grandiose 
inflated sense of their skills, their values, their importance, because all of these stories are compensating or hiding or compartmentalizing a very damaged sense of self. And these people thrive off of attention and approval from others. And that's why they have to have these inflated stories. Interestingly, many of us think the only way to handle someone who's got narcissistic or a very inflated sense of self-worth is by constantly confronting them with their, you know, that they're not all that important <laughs> or that they're not, that they make mistakes. But actually, that's not a way. Uh, Heinz Koa, the great self-psychologist, showed that it's only through an empathetic analyst who probes to uncover that hidden damaged sense of an unlovable self can then provide all the appreciation and attention to the part of the self that's most wounded. And when you do that in a therapeutic manner or with people where you don't give them attention for the times they clamor for it, but for the parts where they feel wounded, when you express empathy for those parts, people begin to develop a far more accurate self-appraisal. Now, there's a couple of other things that can go wrong with the ego. Uh, when the way we feel about ourselves is utterly discordant with the stories we tell, uh, Carl Rogers, the great humanist psychologist, noted that anxiety results. So somebody uh, has this sense, the story of themselves being competent uh, and confident, but in certain situations, they're not very confident. They have uh, insecurity, they feel overwhelmed, they don't feel safe. Then the discrepancy between our internal felt self and our, our explicit self-narrative or egoic appraisal, the conflict between how we think about ourselves and how we feel about ourselves creates anxiety. The farther apart our internal experience is from our cognitive appraisal of self, the more anxiety we feel in life. So that's really important to note that anxiety is a byproduct of not uh, incorporating all of our feelings into an accurate you know, presentation to others of who we are. The more we try to hide our feelings, the more anxiety we feel. If somebody has desires, secret desires to um, not be strong and just vulnerably connect with others, but their friends are very macho, then the more they try to present just a macho facade, the more anxiety they'll feel because they'll have these parts of themselves that they cannot show to others. And that creates, that's what creates the anxiety. Um, the Buddha said that when we're faced with inevitable suffering, um, aging, sickness, loss, not getting what we want, death, what he called dukkha, suffering, when we're faced with these painful, inevitable events, individuals cling to beliefs about their uniqueness and what sets them in apart and what makes them important in a process he called atava upadana. 
He said that this clinging to self-referential thought is the way that we um, is the way that we try to shield ourselves from the inevitable processes of aging, sickness, death, loss. We cling to this sense of uh, what he also called Sakaya Ditti, this fierce identity that we believe is unique and sets us apart. And this in turn leads to grandiosity and for him suffering. So um, that's, I think, a very fascinating insight. And lastly, today we also have a theory called mood congruence, which is that sometimes the ego can be held captive by unacknowledged affective states, underlying sexual drives or depression or anger, and that our conscious egoic functions become hijacked and will look for evidence to confirm these underlying states. So somebody's got monopolar depression due to a deficit of dopamine uh, secretion, and they just have this very low uh, lack of engaged, you know, investment in the world, then the ego and conscious faculties will look around for evidence to say, well, what's the point anyway? There's no point. On the other hand, if somebody has unresolved sexual drives, they will then look around and believe that everyone is interested in them sexually. So egoic function can be essentially overwhelmed and um, overridden by unacknowledged emotional states that if we have very little self-awareness. So what do we do about all this? Well, there's a wonderful transnational study called Pulling Yourself Together by Sander Kuhl and three other psychologists at the University of Amsterdam, Milan, and Ohio State. And they talk about how the discrepancies between our explicit self-esteem, what we've been calling egoic appraisal of ourselves, versus our implicit felt sense of self, actually arises from too much self-referential thinking. So the more we think about ourselves, the less we have an accurate appraisal of who we are. Well, that's very interesting. But it turns out that self-centered attention and constantly comparing ourselves, consciously mulling over what we've achieved and haven't achieved, and so on and so forth, filters our experience through a lens of very biased cultural categories. So we become overly concerned with our financial success or tribal status or materialistic concerns. And when we're in this self-referential thinking, we get further and further and further away from an accurate appraisal of ourself. So while the ego is deeply involved in thought, it actually, if it relies too much on self-contemplation, it actually gets further and further away from 
a robust or positive or accurate sense of self, and it becomes more and more hijacked by these concerns of how well we're fitting in and how do we compare against everyone else. We become concerned with all the wrong things. So what does give a healthy sense of a healthy ego ego or healthy uh, cognitive appraisal of ourself? Well, that's developed in interaction with wise friends, therapists who are willing to reflect back both our growth, our resilience, and the areas in life we need to forgive and the areas in life we need to look at and work on. In 12-step programs, people do fifth, seventh, and 10 steps with sponsors to get a more accurate appraisal of who they are, which helps them function in the world as recovering addicts and alcoholics. My role as the Buddhist pastor is to help reflect back to people in as accurate a way as possible, a more uh, objective appraisal so that people can not be constantly trying to compensate for a wounded sense of self. And also the work is to build up their felt sense of self so that they're not trying to compensate with these grandiose stories of their self-importance. The meta-analysis of the psychologist James Pennebaker's therapeutic journaling practice, expressive writing, it's sometimes known, found that when people visualize emotionally resonant events and then write whatever they feel about it, they integrate both felt and cognitive appraisals, and they develop a more accurate sense of self. Some people report that they can bypass the uh, filtering of culture uh, through plant medicine ceremonies or trance states, and they experience less self-blame and less self-aggrandizement. So, um, but what's most important for us is that in pulling yourself together, notes that what I think most of us Buddhists have known all along, which is that mindfulness meditation promotes observing our internal experience and the ongoing stream of consciousness without it being the normal self-referential thinking. We don't think about ourselves. We observe our feelings, our internal states, and we don't employ pre-existing cultural beliefs or categories. And this in turn promotes a more integrated sense of self. They note that when we simply observe rather than think about ourselves in a meditation practice, we develop a much more intuitive felt representation which can then be incorporated into a much more accurate egoic sense of self that's healthy and allows us to have more right-sized goals and grow and connect with others. And many contemporary psychologists have used mindfulness practices or similar practices from Genlin's focusing to uh, other forms of uh, acceptance 
and compassion therapies. So um, tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to do a mindfulness uh, practice where after we get relaxed and calm, we're going to hold in our mind various important events in our life. And rather than uh, turn those events into a story, we're going to first see how we feel about ourselves and try to integrate that into a much more accurate sense of who we are. So thanks for your attention. I hope that that was interesting in some way. Uh, and now what I'd encourage you to do while I have a sip of water is to find a really comfortable seated position for our meditation. So closing the eyes and just observe yourself bringing your attention to your internal experience, letting the world around you become blurred, less vivid. And trying to find some sensation that's internal that other people wouldn't be able to see. Only you're aware of these sensations. So it might be whether your stomach feels relaxed or tight or whether you can feel the movements of the breath and the chest, maybe the twitching or movement of the micro muscles around the eyes, or maybe there's a set of feelings of anxiousness, instability, irritability, or maybe there's just a feeling of being tired, a heaviness, a dullness, or maybe there's just a sense of ease. Maybe there's a painful feeling somewhere in the lower back or the shoulders or somewhere else. So bring your attention to whatever is the dominant internal experience and just practice bringing your awareness to it without judging, without telling a story about it, and instead just simply be with the experience in and of itself without any judgment.
Now you can either bring your attention fully to the sensations associated with breathing, the inhalation and the exhalation, and just find an area of the body that reflects the operation of breathing. It could be the belly expanding and contracting, the chest opening and releasing, the feel of air moving in and out, the nostrils. Or you don't have to focus on the sensations of the breath. You can bring your attention to an area of the body that feels really relaxing and try to spread the ease slowly through the body. So sometimes I'll feel a sense of ease in the eyes or forehead, and then I'll spread it down the back of the head, down the neck to the shoulders, and just try to release all of the muscle groups that incline towards contraction when I'm not aware of them. Likewise, you could do the opposite, uh, bring a very compassionate, kind awareness to any areas of the body that don't feel particularly good. They may feel tense or painful and just soften around them and Greet these areas with nothing but compassion and kindness, removing any resistance, just acknowledging and soothing. Finally, if you'd like to work with sounds, you can just listen as each new sound passes through awareness and just note how each sound evokes a different set of feelings in the body. Some feel good and easeful, some feeling, some sounds evoke a little bit of tension. Sometimes we feel bored and tune out, and sometimes a sound might even evoke a sense that we should address it immediately, an impulse to move.
So choose whatever practice works for you, maybe a practice I haven't listed. And we'll just sit for a while. And just try to relax into this experience without any judgment, without any sense of the way it should be, just being with what is without any sense that there's something missing or that we should be doing better. No frustration when our thoughts wander with us away from the present, just reawaken through the sensations of your body and just feel good that you're developing a skill that will pay off in so many beneficial ways.
So at this time, to move to our second practice, bring to mind, if you will, a recent emotionally resonant change in your life. It could be a change in work, relationship, where you live, change in anything that feels like a, if not a pivotal, just any event that is in some way returning to mind or just arises first as an experience that that was important and just either hold an image evocative of that event or just in your mind hold a title for that experience. Whatever you choose, whether you hold an image or you just whisper in your mind the experience, just see how this uh, event, what is it, what's its impact? How do you feel internally about it? What does it evoke? A sense of ease or relief? Or do you feel your body relaxing? Or does it feel unresolved, both exciting but vulnerable? Or does it just feel vulnerable? Does it feel... like it's closing options or opening them up. And we're not filtering this experience through good or bad. In any of the normal way we might, there is no one or nothing to blame. Just how does this experience feel? And we're trying to become aware of these feelings to integrate them into or to conform our thoughts in a way that reflect these feelings. What does the heart or body, the right brain wants you to know about this experience.
and you feel muscles in your stomach tighten or release? Can you feel impulses to relax or become guarded and tight? Does the mind feel more expansive or contracted when you hold this event, this recent experience? Now, what I invite you to do is to allow this recent event or experience to take a step back and to now allow any important event from your life much older. It could go all the way back to childhood. Any event that maybe for some reason your heart, mind, things is similar or related. Maybe you don't understand why, but just allow some other event from your past that somehow feels in some way related and just allow that event to present itself as an image or just a a title you can think in your mind, the time I, the time this happened. And once you have this older event, this older experience, see how these, this uh, content what does it evoke in your body? Are the feelings similar or different? How did you feel, or how do you feel now when you think about this older loss or attachment, success or setback? Again, do, does your body relax or feel anxious or heavy, sad or relieved? What's the tone? Uh, how do you feel, not think about this event? Don't tell a story, just what does it evoke?
And finally, noting these two different experiences, one from the distant past maybe, and one far more recent, and noting how each fell, what sense do you have about yourself now from this practice? Allow your ego to note these feelings and integrate it into a sense of what's important for you, who you are. And so when you're ready, you can just slowly take your time and open your eyes.